Straight from the Mayor's Mouth with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council. Hello everyone and welcome to Straight from the Mayor's Mouth. Hello Matt, how are you mate? Well I was a bit scared actually during the week. Were you now? Why so scared? A snake. I haven't seen a snake at our place. We've lived in the same place for 25 years. Right. Haven't seen, in, in town, not right. out of town, yeah, haven't yeah. seen a snake here ever. Yeah. And then during the week, my wife was out just doing a little bit of work around the garden. She right. came inside and said, hmm, there seems to be a snake in the neighbour's tree. And our neighbour's tree, yes. this particular neighbour's tree is on our boundary fence. So it's essentially just on our yep. boundary there. Yeah. So talked to the neighbour and said, snake there. We came and had a look. Yeah. And was it all, a big one or? It was about probably maybe two metres, maybe a bit less it's than two big metres. enough. It was big enough. It yeah. wasn't. It didn't look like, I'm no expert on snakes, it didn't look like it was a poison snake, so it wasn't yeah. a brown snake or a red-bellied black snake or anything. Mm. It had some beautiful markings on it, if right. you like snakes. It was like a python or something, was it? Or? I'd say it was just a carpet snake. Yeah, yeah. But we sat there and watched it for a little while and went, hmm, that's lovely, but who wants to be the one to <laughs> do anything with it? No one would have touched <laughs> it, of course, right. and it wouldn't be smart to do that. Yeah, absolutely. So we rang the snake catcher, and yeah. he was fantastic, came around, and he climbed up in the tree, and oh, really? de- delicately brought it down and put it in the bag, and oh, away he went. That's so, very impressive. <laughs> yeah, it was. He, he actually, I was very impressed with him. He came yeah. around and knew what he was doing, and was straight into it, and basically did what he had to do, and we're all sitting back going, are we are we okay, three metres or four metres? Is that, <laughs> can we help from here? <laughs> well, that's that fantastic. Like from the point of view, it certainly beats sort of sitting around, mate, watching a bit of Netflix on a Friday night. Uh, a <laughs> bit of live action theatre happening for everybody. It yeah. was, that's right. <laughs> you can so, see why those shows, the reality shows where they do go out with oh. snake catchers, why they'd be so popular because there's something absolutely. about a snake. It just, I, I, I'm not a fan of snakes. I mm. mean, I'm sure they're beautiful reptilian creatures and people want to talk about how important they are for our ecosystems. I accept all of that. I just don't want it to be me. The no, one that's right. Absolutely. <laughs> Happy to watch you on a TV or from that's maybe right. a newspaper article or something, but get those things away from me. Yeah. <laughs> and they're so good. So we watched him, watch the, I don't know if it was him or her, but we watched the snake on the tree, obviously waiting for the snake catcher. And he was mm. really good. He turned up pretty quickly. Mm. But even just in that time, it had gotten to the point where you just couldn't see the snake in the tree at all. And wow. we watched where it went and we're saying, it's gone up in there, yeah. but it was quite hard for the snake. So this bloke's it. up in the tree <laughs> trying to find a two-metre snake <laughs> that he can't see, but he's sort of scrounging his way through. Oh, my God, there's no way in the world. You could not pay me enough money to do that. Right. <laughs> so, so, yes, you're right. It was all a bit of... Excitement, not sure if that's the right word, a bit of adventure, even though yeah, yeah, adventure yeah. from Sounds from exciting to me anyway, away. from a distance anyway. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, so uh, a bit different anyway. Absolutely. Well, thanks for the story, mate. And I appreciate the fact, too, that the snake's not sitting around this little studio of ours right now. No, that's very no. good to see. Or in the ceiling coming or down. Or the ceiling coming down, that's right. Uh, now, look, uh, speaking of animals, uh, what a wonderful situation during the week when we had the opening of the new Platypus Rescue HQ out there at the zoo. It's an impressive establishment there. I mean, the whole zoo is impressive. Yeah. But that particular facility there, having a look through that, I, I love the fact that it was built by a local builder, David Payne, won the construction right. tender job for that. Yep. And so you look at that and you've got, for a start, the first part, which is the classic sort of exhibit of a zoo. So mm. you've got a, a tank there, somewhere you can watch this platypus, and there's one platypus there at the moment named Mackenzie. Mackenzie. <laughs> Mackenzie. Oh, there you and go. Mackenzie was putting on a show this particular day. On Mackenzie seemed quite happy in his new surroundings. Absolutely. And showing off and going up through the water and swimming around through the exhibit, and that was all fine, but that's only a small part of it. Mm. When you then go at the back section, and you've got a window that you can see through the back section, but 
we were lucky enough on the opening day to have a tour taken through the whole area. Mm. And there are a number of tanks out there. And the whole idea is that there might be rivers that might be stressed in terms of our variable climate now. Mm. And what happens to the platypuses that might be out in these river systems, there might be some way that we can bring them in and keep them here safe in captivity. Right. Breeding is certainly an option, but breeding is tough. There's not a lot of breeding that has occurred with platypuses in the past. Right, so within a sort of controlled environment sort of correct, thing. Correct, yeah, right? so okay. breeding programs haven't, and it's probably fair to say there hasn't been enough research done on that, but also there hasn't been a lot of breeding programs that have been mm. highly successful. So mm. there's potential there for research to be done around that, but more than anything else, have somewhere for these platypuses to go when they haven't got a river system mm. to be in or there might be some extreme problems with drought, for example, or there might be something in the water there that might be affecting their habitat, their natural mm. habitat. So there are a number of tanks there, and it's pretty hard to describe, so I, I do say go out and have a look at yep. it. But a number of tanks. So you, where you can actually go out and see all the tanks? Well, they've got a viewing window there. Right. I don't know whether they'll be doing tours through the back of the tanks like we had on the opening day, but there were no platypus in the actual tanks when we went right. through it all so yeah. maybe they want to keep people away from that area but certainly the viewing window you can get a good view of them so mm. you've got they've got a large tank with water in it they've got a, a little tunnel that goes through to a dirt environment so that essentially there's each of those is own little system and there's a number mm. of these mm. so that's meant to replicate the water on the edge of the riverbank that they would have oh, in wow. the natural environment so again the idea would be if there's any sort of environment where they need to take the platypuses out of the natural environment. We've got somewhere for them to go. We've got somewhere for people to come and look at platypuses. And yep. they're pretty interesting characters. Oh, they're quite yeah, cute. Yeah. And they are unique. There's a, a sign there that frustrated me a little bit because it said, platypus, most unique. And I've got no, there should be no clarification around unique. Unique mm. is a you're binary. unique or you're not. Exactly right. And they are. They're unique, mm. full mm. stop. That's it. So it is quite interesting to look at. And I love the fact that we do see so many different animals out at the zoo now mm. and so when you see some of these ones the meerkats and the otters and the platypuses so mm. and there's you, ongoing developments out there all the time isn't there oh, like that's the other thing. Right. you just mentioned the meerkats well they've got their new exhibit out there it wasn't yeah. that long ago they did the big lion exhibit out there and how that's all been changed yep. do you know of any other plans that are, are sort of afoot so to speak in regards to the zoo well the big serengeti experience that's the big mm. one there's 20 million dollars worth of funding that we're a part of this, council's a part of yeah. this, and that would have been maybe a year ago, maybe even a little bit longer than that ago, I'm trying to remember back when it was, mm. that that was announced. And that whole project is about a $30 million project, so there's money coming in from Taronga, money from the state government. Wow. Uh, they'll probably do some other fundraising around that. But that will be a fantastic experience because that will be a, a function centre, a cafe, somewhere to train staff up, somewhere to have events. Wow. You've, you've got the Savannah Room now at the zoo, which is a great spot. And yeah. In fact, our wedding reception was there, yes. looking at over the lake there. But this will be that bigger yeah. and better, have larger conferences there. But then that whole Serengeti experience, mm. the idea is to try and replicate, you're never going to do it perfectly, but mm. some of those South African Serengeti experiences wow. in a much safer Imagine that as a reception space. Yeah, yeah. How cool right. would that be? Yeah, so That'd that's an awesome. exciting one. So you're right, they're continually doing developments. This mm. was a $12 million development for... That's impressive in the same right, isn't it? Yeah, 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 it is. But you just... What I love about it is you get such a variety mm. of different animals, different sort of experiences, mm. very large animals. You talked about there, the lions. You've got mm. rhinos. You've got elephants. You've got those in an open environment. Mm. And then you get 
platypuses and mm. otters, and so you get these smaller animals that you can see in a much you know, closer I just sort of think as you're talking there about that, like so many of those individual exhibits out there, if they were individually set up, let's just say that that new platypus set up, you could probably have that as its own standalone tourist attraction somewhere around town. People would pay money to go and see that as a standalone attraction, mm. let alone sort of going out there and having that one as part of a huge you know, Congress of all these different types of attractions. Yeah, you're spot on. There are so many that are standalone. Mm. And what people maybe don't always realise is that the zoo primarily is a conservation centre. Mm. The fact that it just happens to draw 350,000 people to Dubbo each year mm. is a bonus for us and a wonderful bonus that we've got. Yeah. But it's a conservation process. So when you've got something like this, this is exactly the whole process is see how they can get animals in, keep them in an environment where eventually you can either have breeding programs or I learnt a new term during the week and it's right. rewild. 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 So presumably that means putting them back in the wild, maybe yep. back in their own environment or a new environment that yeah. might be similar to their own environment, basically getting them back out in the wild. And yeah. I, During the various speeches I heard that term used a number of times. Oh, I can remember that word. I like that word. Mm. I'll, I'll, mm. I'll steal that and use that. Yep. Yep. So, And that's the, obviously the aim with the platypuses. If you bring them in from some environment, keep them there, make sure mm. they're healthy, maybe try a breeding program, but then eventually mm. rewild those as well. Well, it certainly sounds like it's time for me to get back out to the zoo. Mm. It's an interesting little one, Matt. We talked about this uh, going back a few podcasts back. There are some companies out there who are in the, the 3D printing market, and in particular in regards to uh, 3D printing homes. Now, it looks as though during the week you managed to catch up with one of these organisations and have a bit of a chat to them, maybe drive around to sort of look at the potential to build a few 3D homes in Dubbo. Is, is there a potential for a reality for this to happen? Well, the interesting part is that this particular company is not focused on 3D printing. Oh. This particular company is focused on producing housing, right? affordable housing, Aboriginal housing, a whole range of different types of housing, but a real focus on that sort of affordable type housing. Okay. But are they looking at using 3D printed homes, though, as an option in this case? Correct. Okay, so right. So they've produced a lot of homes already, and they've produced a lot of homes in a lot of different areas. Yep. But on the back of the publicity that was generated around our 3D printed toilet and our focus on some blocks of land that we've set aside for 3D printing, then they've been having some discussions with both ourselves, with the Aboriginal Housing Office, with the company that did the 3D printing for the toilet here in Dubbo. And so they're pretty keen to right. do some other projects. Now, fairly large projects, but yeah. obviously want to start off with some smaller ones, do a few houses, see how that goes, and then keep building from there. So they're looking at two locations at the moment, mm. one other location and Dubbo. Right. And Dubbo obviously has been attractive to them because of the success we've already had. Yeah. And so they're keen to talk to us. They came and visited us here in Dubbo. And one of the things I want to talk about was the planning side of it because, again, as we know, when we said we're going to go down this path with housing and with other construction, mm. we said to our planning team, we need to be sure that we have some way of approving a construction that's mm. using a 3D printer method because it's all new. Mm. And our staff went away at that time, and this is going back over a year now, a year and a half ago, and they talked to the state government. Of course, it was all very new for the state government. So we had to work out how we could do approvals, mm. making sure that everything would still be ticked off in a safe and satisfactory way, mm. but still be able to approve these. Yep. So they were pretty excited the fact that our planners had already done that work. So if they submitted an application, they knew that our staff already had all the tools they needed mm. to be able to say, yes, we would approve that or no, you need to go and mm. change these, fix these. So that was good for them. So, so at this point in time, if, if I'm, let's just say on a personal level, if I wanted to go out and build a 3D printed home here in Dubbo for myself, 
Okay, let's say I want to go and live in a 3D printed home. I've decided this one, that type of house I want to live in. Can I go to council right now and seek approval for that? You would have plans you would submit in the same way you would submit plans in a normal construction. But again, because it's 3D printed, that's where our staff had to say, well, mm. how do we know this is safe? How do we know this complies with the building code, the building standards? So yes, our staff have got that. So if you mm. submit a plan and they ticked off all the correct boxes, mm. yes, our staff have got the ability to approve those plans for you to go and then construct Did you that. then say the fact that because we built the 3D printed toilets, that that assisted then the staff in regards to getting the knowledge base on, on how to move forward with this? All of the above. That's yeah, right. okay. So they could have done it without that particular construction, but it also highlights that this is a reality. It's not just something that mm. there's a resolution of council sitting on the books. Mm. And so we talked to this company, then we jumped in the car and I went for mm. a drive around Dubbo with them and showed them a number of our housing lots. And they're looking at potentially a very large chunk of housing, which would be fantastic for our housing market because mm. we need more housing. Mm. And some of the future developments, the various future developments that we know that we've spoken about before, but they also wanted to get some going almost straight away. Mm. So they liked some of the developments that are available where you can just buy a block right now and start building on it. So mm. they, they love the fact that there were both options. So I'm pretty confident that within the next month, they'll probably make a purchase of one of those blocks of land, maybe a few of those mm. blocks of land, and actually go through that process and start building. Are they, are they linked to the Department of Housing or anything like that, or are they a separate entity? It's an independent organisation, but they certainly do do work for government entities, and I mentioned the Aboriginal Housing Office, for mm. example, is one of those. So they certainly do do work for various agencies in government, but mm. it's an independent, privately owned organisation as such. So they love the idea of getting in and doing some of those to begin with, but they also like the idea of some of those future developments, and I'm talking about things like the Northwest development we've spoken about before and similar developments where they can get in and get a large number of blocks done. Mm. And so they see potential for short-term, small number, longer-term, large number, Bottom line is more housing in Dubbo, mm. which means we can have mm. all these people that want to come and move to Dubbo, we can have somewhere for them to live. Mm. You don't have to roll out some maybe uh, mattresses on the, the floor of your lounge room. We can actually have oh, houses for them to live. We've got a few for our square metres there, but not much. <laughs> all right, and Matt, uh, during the week, of course, the first... Uh, Council meeting was held for the year. Was this the first council meeting for the year? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's so always a big one then, if that's the case, because there's been the Christmas break and you're uh, you're into it now. So there's a few just, little topics. Just on that 500, over 500 pages was our business papers for the for Only the 500 this year, is that's that right? Or, oh. or a little bit over 500. Yeah, a bit, bit of light reading before you head off to bed sort of thing, is that right? <laughs> well, based on that, I can understand then while I've got quite a few areas to get through then in regards to it. Can we start off then, Matt, in regards to the first one? Um, this is interesting that there's... We've talked again about this, Yeovil. Um, Yeovil's a beautiful little town, but it's it's split in two. There's You've got North Yeovil, which falls under the Dubbo Regional Council precinct, and then you've got uh, the main area of Yeovil, which falls under Cabon. Um, it just seems quite silly, the fact that we've got a small little town like Yeovil falls under uh, two controlling precincts. Now, it looks as though there's been some discussion there in regards to what future direction, I suppose, the WA Regional Council is going to take in regards to whether or not we continue um, having control over North Yeovil, or is there a, a potentially a plan in place here to give North Yeovil back to Cabon? So you're right. Buckenbar Creek is the divider between Cabon Council and WA Regional Council. It used to be Wellington Shire Council before the amalgamation. Mm. And as with anything, or in history says that 
you're looking for some logical reasons to put boundaries in place. And as we know, it's often a river, a creek, might be property boundary lines, etc. But Buck and Bar Creek was chosen. Mm. So Yeovil, over in Camon Council, yeah. you come across Buck and Bar Creek, you're in North Yeovil mm. or in Dubbo Regional Council. Mm. And it's quite frustrating for the residents there and probably a little bit frustrating from a council perspective mm. as well. The cemetery, for example, is in North Yeovil. You've got a few houses in North Yeovil, but people just assume they're in Yeovil. They don't think too much about all of that. Mm. But mm. the people in North Yeovil get their rates from Dubbo Regional Council. Mm. When we do maintenance out there, mowing or looking after the cemetery, that type of thing, it's a fair way from any of other Dubbo Regional Council assets. Yep. So we would send our staff out there. They do work out there. They'd come back. We've now got to the stage where we've got an arrangement with Gabon Council where we actually pay them to do some of the work yeah, over right. in North Yeovil. Yep. So it doesn't make a lot of sense. Mm. And for people there they feel like they're just part of Yeovil, but they're kind of not really part mm. of Yeovil. Mm. So I've been out to a public meeting out there. We sat through and just talked about a whole range of issues, and, and this was one of the issues that came up mm. in discussions. Can so we ask s- you, do the people of North Yeovil, would they prefer to be with Cabon? It kind of makes more sense, and mm. I don't think they really care that much. It's where you get your rates notice from, but it does make more sense mm. that they've got the one council they can all talk to because at this public meeting I went to there, there were mostly people from Yeovil there. Mm. So why was I there? I'm nothing to do with, with Cabon Council, but there were some people from North Yeovil there, so mm. I was there to represent those people. So mm. it was a bit confusing for people. So it just makes more sense. Again, I don't think they really care one way or the other, but if they had to choose, they'd probably choose Cabon Council. So we've started a process which is a long process. Right. We've had some informal discussions with Yeovil, with Kevin Beatty, the mayor there, and, and certainly from a staff level, there have been some informal discussions. Mm. And everyone says it makes sense, so why don't we do it? Mm. So we've started a process, and that went through council on Thursday night in terms of just some of the steps there. There'll be some more steps that'll come back to council about probably May. There'll be some, another report that'll come back. They'll do the same in Cabon Council. They go through some steps over there. Then that'll feed some information through to the state government, mm. and it'll probably come back, and there'll be some more community consultation. And mm. I reckon it's probably a year away, everything goes well, before we finally get to the stage where you could actually have a boundary adjustment, and that literally would be a redrawing of the line of the boundary. So Buck and Bar Creek wouldn't be the boundary. It'd be somewhere inside that mm. and obviously leaving the cemetery and those residents in North Yeovil to be all part mm. of the Mon Council. I can also imagine too the fact with state government, uh, they would have a, a huge involvement, as you say here, they have to have the sign-off, I'd imagine, on this because you're redistributing yeah. the boundary lines and uh, re-establishing those. And is there a precedent on this? Is there other scenarios that you're aware of where, where councils have uh, literally given part of their land to another um, shire or I'm know, sure there are, but I don't know of any i'm just trying to think of anywhere i've seen it or okay. talked to anyone about it but i don't know of anywhere it's happened but i'm sure there is a process in place mm. so i'm sure it's happened before and there are logical reasons and this one here i would almost think at some point in the future we haven't had any discussions about it so i'm talking prematurely mm. but if you look at somewhere such as kurz creek eucarina type area mm. that area there would see their central point of influence being orange mm. and they're probably 40 k's maybe away from orange mm. whereas they're 100 k's away from dubbo mm. so dubbo having control of that area there doesn't make a lot of sense yeah. that might be another area that might be more logical to be in Cabon, for example yeah. Or, yeah. or orange but obviously Cabon's the adjacent one so that might be another one we look at down the track at some mm. point in time but at mm. the moment we haven't it, it hasn't been as bleedingly obvious because there's not a community like Yeovil that's cut in half Mm. in those particular circumstances. But it's what you should be doing, really, when you look at boundaries around council is 
where is your centre of influence? Yeah. Who, what, what community do you normally associate with? Yeah. And I'm sure people in Eucarina yeah. don't think of Dubbo, they think more of Orange. And that also sort of leads into your ability to service that community effectively too, I suggest. Like, like distance can be a big problem in servicing an area effectively. It's a combination, I think, of distance and population. Mm. So for somewhere, if you go out west to some of the councils like a, a Burke or a Walgett, some of those ones, it's a big area, mm. but there's really only one population centre. Mm. So it makes sense that that population centre has got to look after that big area, which is tough from the roads perspective. Yeah, yeah. But when you've got multiple population centres, so Dubbo and then Wellington and then Molong and then Orange, when you've got multiple ones like that, distance is a part of that. So you kind of want to look at where you would mm. be influenced, where your centre of influence would be. Mm. And where, if I'm in Eucarina, where do I go to do my shopping? Do I go to Dubbo mm. or do I go to Molong or Orange? And mm. again, I think logically you'd probably be going more in mm. that direction than you would back yep. in towards yep. Dubbo. So yep. that makes sense to probably look at that. But again, we haven't had any of those discussions yet. No, I'm no. speaking prematurely. No, no, no. But I see where you're going with it though. So yeah, well, I suppose one of those things we'll wait and see and uh, then the next little bit you can give us the update and how it's all going. Now one of the things got uh, raised there on uh, Thursday night, uh, there was a notice of motion about the Cameron Park toilets. Um the toilets have, again, as we've mentioned a few occasions, uh, have become a bit problematic over there in Cameron Park with the establishment of the new toilet blocks there. Or block, should I say, not blocks, but the new toilet block. Um, has there been a discussion on Thursday night in regards to how, I suppose, we can try to amend, fix this problem right now? Because there is a problem, because as you've mentioned on a number of occasions, uh, the big problem now is that the toilet block, the way it currently stands with only the, the male, female and a disabled toilet sit in place. You've got buses and coaches and things that you know, people aren't stopping there anymore and therefore that's to, you know, taking away from the potential there within a place like Wellington for people to go off and go a bit of shopping, you know, go get yourself a drink, get something to eat, those sort of breaks. Um, we obviously want people to stop in Wellington. We want them to use uh, Cameron Park again as a, as a space uh, for a toilet break area. Is there... Well, the best way to put it is, have there been some discussions around what is going to be the best way forward with this? Council did resolve on Thursday night to have a look at how we might provide more facilities there. The frustrating part, I suppose, is that there was a lack of consultation from the last council when they replaced the toilets. The old toilets needed to be replaced. Mm. They'd gone well and truly past their use-by date, so there's no problem there. The problem happened when you took a toilet that had multiple male mm. and multiple female cubicles in separate areas and a urinal there and take that with the services that it provided to the mm. community. And it's, you mentioned the coaches, the people that might stop there that are travelling through, the, the caravans, that type of thing. But it's mm. also events that happen there. You've got markets that happen there on mm. a regular basis. You've got bigger events like Australia Day, for example. Yeah, so yeah. you've got all these events and there you, you want to be able to have toilet facilities that suit the needs mm. for that particular area. Mm. I'm not sure what happened. It was before I was back on council, whether there was any community consultation or what the discussion was. But for whatever reason, the toilets were replaced with a single male cubicle that is one of the ones where you, you go in and close the door and the mm. wash basin and the toilet, everything is there. So there's only one person in there at a time, mm. single female, and then the disabled. Which is all fine. Yeah, from a personal point of view, that, that that's fine to have those sorts. The problem, I think, is more about the fact that it's just not enough. Yeah, that's right. Yep. And the disabled, which has got the MLAC system, which we've talked about before. So you can't use the disabled toilet unless you've got that mm. key. So essentially, you've got two toilets there. And the feedback we're hearing from the Wellington community is that coaches that used to stop 
there, now no longer stop there. They just keep going through mm. to Dubbo or back in the other direction, probably to Molong. So they're missing out on those shoppers. And it's probably frustrating as well when people just stop there. If it's not a coach and there's a line up there or there's people waiting mm. around there. And I know I've, I've been to a park run in another location that mm. had a single toilet like that or single cubicle toilets like that. Yeah. And there was a couple of standing around waiting before park run to go to the toilet, which sometimes happens before a park mm. run. And we're sitting there waiting and the toilet's there and they seem to be taking a long time, the person previously. And I said to this person, so I, do you reckon we should just knock on the door to make sure they're okay? And so we did. We knocked on the door and no mm. response there and we're still waiting. And, and I, we went over to one of the park run organisers and I said, oh, the toilet over there, is that in operation? Oh, no. No, it's been in operation for a few weeks now. Uh, but we yeah. didn't know. It just it yep. was engaged. So yep. you don't know that. And so then you're standing around waiting. And mm. then so it, it becomes a bit problematic. So you might get out going through in a caravan, for example. You, All right, we'll stop here and go to the toilet. And you're sitting there. Oh, it's engaged. I'll wait. I'll wait. I'll wait. Mm. And is there someone in there or is there not someone in there? You don't really mm. know what's going on because they're completely closed off. Yep. So that's a bit of a problem in terms of all of that. And again, at events, it's frustrating for people at events. Does it stop people from going to events? Probably not, but it's a bit annoying when they're there and they can't go mm. to the toilet. So the bottom line is, let's get, excuse the bad pun there with the bottom line, but <laughs> what we need to do is work at some way, and this is the resolution that was made from council. So, so are options about answer. building more toilets? Is that one of the things? Well, or is that a fairly costly There's over 300 grand that was spent on those toilets, yeah. and that was back in about 2019. Okay. I'm not a great fan of spending more money on another set of toilets, but what do we do? Mm. Do we change those existing toilets? Do we look at getting access to the cafe toilets or there's a visitor's information centre nearby there? Mm. Do we Can we somehow open those up or there's a library? So basically mm. it was as part of the whole budget development process, can we look at how we might, may provide more amenities? Because it's very frustrating for the people in mm. Wellington mm. and it's been going on for some time now in relation to that. Again, each time you build a toilet, you would logically look at what the needs are of that community around that area and build mm. that toilet accordingly. And again, in this case, for whatever reason, it didn't happen. So has council asked staff to go back and come up with some options here or some look at some ideas or what's what's actually happened? Yeah, just some options to provide more toilet amenities in Cameron Park and again, as part of that whole budget development process. And mm. the budget, which obviously gets finally approved at the end of June, it's a long process, so we're already talking about budget development, but that makes mm. sense. You want people have that discussion, think about the budget. So when we do get to the stage where we're approving the budget, we think we've got most things covered mm. that are going to be needed over the next year. Have a plan in place already, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Now just leading on from that, um, Matt, there was also a notice of motion brought forward there in developing a public toilet policy. Public toilet policy, is this, is this something that's fairly common across the state? Do, do, do most council groups have public toilet policies? No, they don't. And again, councils And what bring, is a public toilet policy anyway? Good question. <laughs> councils can bring forward any ideas for notices right. of motion that make sense. And so this was brought forward by one of our councils and it was debated at length at council about mm. whether we needed this. Mm. And there weren't many councils across the state that actually have a public toilet policy. And some of those toilet policies were fairly long. Some of the ones we found, we're talking about 40, almost 50 pages long mm. for some of these policies. And the, the real problem was that we debated it the, the council process there was, do we need a policy when really each time you replace a toilet block or build a new toilet block, mm. it is pretty much bespoke for that area. Mm. And I think of, we've just talked about there, Cameron Park, well, yeah. they didn't get that right, but normally you'd be planning it for that. Mm. We've got a couple of toilet block replacements coming up and we've got some money, definitely for the first one, I know, money from the state government to replace the toilets in Victoria Park. Yeah. Now, Victoria Park is a very 
popular area. Yep. There's a great playground there. It's right beside the pool. It's big events like Australia Day again yep. that we had just recently there. So there are times when there's a lot of people there. Mm. Uh, even just normal day-to-day activity, there's lots of people mm. going through Victoria Park. So that will probably need to be a toilet that's yep. got a number of cubicles there, uh, access for a lot of people. So Another, you'd be assessing it based upon the needs of the area, I suppose. Exactly right. What's our budget? How much yeah. money do we get from the state yeah. government from that? What are the needs for people in the area? What are the any special conditions? Do we need to lock it up at night time? Is it okay to leave it open at night time? Mm. Those type of things. And another toilet block replacement we've got coming up in the near future is out of Butler's Falls. Mm. Now, Butler's Falls is, has got nowhere near the same level of usage that you have at Victoria Park. Yeah. The needs out there at Butler's Falls are certainly dramatically different to Victoria Park. So you would be designing a toilet there that would be very different to the one at Victoria mm. Park. So I think councillors, as we talked about it, as we debated it, it was really, do you really need an overarching policy when each one you design is pretty much for that area? And how many are we going to do? And we talked about it over the next four years. We've got those two that I just mentioned. There might be a third over the next four right. years. So it's not as if we're doing it all the time. Oh, no, we need a policy to be able to do it all the mm. time. The other one that was brought up was that there's been a bit of discussion about public toilet policies or strategies at state parliament. I was going to say, would you think, though, more about the fact that this sounds more like a state government Based idea, like if you talk about policies about uh, different types of toilets and things, could that be something that state government would be more directive with in regards to rather than local councils leaving it to councils to do? Well, that was exactly what was debated at the council meeting on Thursday okay. night. That state government has had discussion. There's been discussion okay. at state government about public toilet policy. Hmm. So rather than 128 councils across the state hmm. all developing their own individual public toilet policy. Hmm. If it is important from a state government perspective, the fact that it's even been discussed there at state yeah. government, would it make more sense to the state well, government spends the time? It would make more sense because every council has to organise their toilets. So therefore, if you've got a governing body over your council groups, shouldn't really the directive be coming from them in regards to if you want to have some policies, we'll set it up from that level first? Yeah, and I think that was part of the decision making for councillors. The other part was just the time. The question was asked about how long this would take, how much staff time it would take, and the general answer was mm. probably about three months. You'd have to take a staff member off other duties to go and do this, but in that process as well, you're going to come back, you're going to go to public consultation, you're going to bring it back to council or a draft policy, you're then going to go out for more public consultation. So it's a, a mm. fairly long process, and expensive in terms of staff time mm. and for probably no overall net benefit given the fact you'd still look at each individual toilet development. So mm. in the end, mm. an idea was brought forward, discussed at length and didn't end up being resolved okay. by council. That's called democracy. Yeah, that's right. Another notice of motion, uh, Matt, uh, was brought forward in regards to the council pool private management. Now, I know there's there's been some issues with the the current group that's managing the uh, our pools here. Looking through this in regards to the notice of motion that's sort of been brought forward, um, is this possibly about the regards that they're, they're looking at wanting uh, to make the current group, the current management group, uh, I don't know, m- more accountable for their actions or is it the fact that they're looking at sort of seeing, do they feel as though they might have breached some some type of a contract situation here, that, that there's been some type of a breach in regards to whatever's happened here? They, like what's, what was the, the notice of motion about in regards to this? It was really in response to the fact there has been some discussion, as you mentioned there, about the pool and certainly about the disappointment with how the process has gone so far. Mm. And we as councillors get to see some of this information. So things like has the contract been breached? Well, mm. we've had discussions with our staff and asked our staff and just 
to find out exactly where that's at. And we don't see from our staff perspective. So the general feeling is there's been no breach at this point in time? No, no breach. Certainly disappointment, mm. but no breach of the contract. And then whether or not we could get out of it, yes, we all know we could get out of it. It's going to cost you money. You'd say at a minimum it would cost you the life that's left on the contract. So that's after this season, there's four more years in the contract, some optional years after that, but at least four more years. We know the contract's in the vicinity of $1.4 million a year, so you can do the math pretty easy and mm. say, well, it's probably going to cost us about $5.6 million. Mm. But what councils have asked for is this information that we know that we can put together, we can access, come back to us with a report, which would be a fairly simple report from our staff, which again, why councils were pretty comfortable with it, mm. come back with a report just to give us this information, tell us about any potential breaches, were there breaches there, could we bring it back in-house, what would it cost us to do that, just so we've got that information, mm. so that if we did want to take action on that, we'll at least have the information to be able to take action. I don't think any councils are talking about cancelling the contract, bringing it back in-house. Much of the discussion has been that the performance hasn't been up to scratch from Belgravia Leisure so far, and they certainly admit that as well. Mm. But you, as a council group, we made a decision. We resolved to go external. There's no reason that's still not the right decision. There's been no evidence to say that was the wrong decision council made. Unfortunately, the execution of that decision hasn't mm. been perfect. Mm. So the decision was right, execution not perfect, so let's work on the execution. Don't throw out the baby with the bathwater mm. and then go back and try and change the decision you made. It was still the right decision at the time. Since our last discussion on this, and I know you met with the, the management team there with Bill Gravia, have we seen improvements with with what's the operation of uh, of the pools, we've certainly seen improvements in terms of just some discussions we've had with different user groups, but they also run as many organisations do. They run NPS, a net promoter system or net promoter score, sorry. And net promoter score is a universally used system for customer feedback, and it's you know, large companies, big companies across the world use this. Mm. And Belgravia, I wasn't aware of this, but Belgravia do use NPS as well. And that's a way you can just get constant feedback on your customer relations. And they've certainly seen an improvement in the information they've shared with us. They've seen an improvement in their net promoter score mm. since the beginning of this year. So over January, for example, and into February, that net promoter score has certainly gone up. Okay. And, and so that says to me some of the teething problems, some of those initial issues, and some of those were around the ability to get enough staff. We know that many employers in Dubbo suffer with this problem, so they just couldn't get enough staff, and they've had to bring in staff from other locations just to keep the pools open. So I think as they've better down some staff, they've got some certainty in that staffing, they've had their procedures, been able to be learned by their staff and then implement those. I think that's slowly getting better. Mm. I don't think it's perfect yet, but it's certainly been getting better. So mm. again, it's the right decision. Let's continue on with the right decision mm. rather than try and throw out the uh, whole concept. Has council staff needed to do, sort of take more of a hands-on approach with, with this group in regards to getting them to this stage? Or is this something now, though, that... Uh, as you talked about with your the rating system there, is this something, though, that the council has to uh, continue to have to monitor more closely? We probably have had to do a closer monitoring of that than we would have liked to have done. Mm. The One of the reasons that council went this way was the saving of approximately $400,000 a year over us running it internally. But that erodes some of that money if you've got to spend way mm. too much of your staff time and senior staff time managing that contract. So I'm not saying that we've shoot up $400,000 in staff time, but certainly it's been a little bit more hands-on management or 
contract discussion than we would have liked to have had. Mm. Uh, even the fact, as you said, that I met with the state manager there, I wouldn't normally expect to be meeting with the state manager for one of our contractors, whatever it was going smoothly. You yeah. might you might have a, a bit of an update once a year just to see how things are going, but this was more a meeting to say, mm. yes, you've heard from our staff, I want to tell you from the elected body as well, and from our community, this is what we're mm. hearing and this is the disappointment we've but had. Is it also part of like, we're getting towards the end of the swimming season, to be honest, is there's maybe a couple more months to go before the sort of the full season sort of finishes up. In moving into next year with the contract, assuming that there's been no breach of contract and Bill Gravy continues to run the operations, moving into next year, do you foresee the fact that prior to opening next year that there is, again, council staff taking a, a bit more of a hands-on approach to ensure the fact that they're set up to roll, that the expectations are being met from the start? I hope not. I hope that... They've gone through those teething issues, they've got staff issues sorted out, they've got their procedures better down. At the beginning of next season, I hope it takes very little management mm. from our perspective for them to roll in and just keep ticking away. And I think of our caravan park, which is leased out and has been long-term leased out for some time now and some time into the future, mm. and we have minimal discussions with the contractors there because it just happened, mm. it works, everything's fine. And you, you still have updates, you just... Make yep. sure you've got a relationship That's the way there. you want it to roll, don't you? That's Absolutely. right, yeah. And so I don't know that we'll need to do that. And certainly from Belgravia's perspective, they have said, and, and we agree with this, that they had a very short amount of time from when the contractors were awarded until the swimming season started. Mm. Now, that was a one reasonable expectation for the poor performance this time around, but next yeah. time, next season... There so should be no the, excuses, really, for No that. excuses. No. You'll get to the end of the 2024 or 2023-2024 season. Yep. So that'll finish up, as you say, in a couple months' time. And then you'll have all the time in between to make sure everything's right to go, any little maintenance needs to be done. If there's any major maintenance, you yep. can bring that council's attention. Yep. Open the swimming season at the end of 2024, mm. everything should be ready to rock and roll. Yep. And then the old no news is good news factor should hopefully then drop in. Well, I like this one. This, uh, this looks pretty good in the sense that there's been some amendments to the Renewable Energy Benefit Framework. Um, now, we've talked at length in regards to the Benefit Framework. This is where uh, Council, uh, is, with all the, the renewable energy groups out there, Council is aiming to get uh, where that we can, around about 1.5%, isn't it? Is that, is that right, looking at it as a, as a figure? Correct, yeah, 1.5% of the capital investment value, the CIV, yep. or if you like, just the cost of building it, 1.5% yep. of the total cost of how much it costs to construct it, we get that as a community benefit fund, and that's then spread over the life of the contract, say 30 years, and indexing is applied. So it goes up by CPIG. Now, this has been something you've been keen to get within the wind farm. Solars have always been jumping up and down and sort of saying that it's been a much tougher situation. Uh, is this going to be something now that council is going to go across to wind and solar and potentially other areas as well? Such as batteries, for example. Batteries, yes. Yeah. So we have been breaking new ground in this, without a doubt. Across the nation, there are very few, if any, councils that have this type of framework that we say, here you go, renewable energy provider, this is what we expect for our community. Now, keep in mind the frustration we've talked about before, they don't have to give us the money. Mm. We aren't the consent authority. We can't say no if you don't give mm. us the money. All we can do is hand it, hold it at hand and say, please, sir, can we have some? We've talked about this to state government and federal government. This is a major flaw mm. in the whole framework of moving across to renewables. You've been talking about this for a fair while, Matt. It, it, I know you've had discussion with guys like Chris Bowen and these sort of fellows as well. Has there been any movement from them at all in regards to support this? 
I think there's been discussion that says, yes, we agree, but not any move to actually legislate this. And mm. if it gets to the point, so we've been successful, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later on the program, but mm. successful in some areas in getting, say, the 1.5% for some of these renewable energy proponents. So if it was in legislation, it would just mean that everyone's on a level playing field. Mm. We found some of the better proponents that are happy to provide some sort of benefit for the community and some sort of social licence have been the ones that have been happy to negotiate and happy mm. to make things happen in a way that seems like it's a good outcome for everyone. Mm. Other ones, and they've got the right to do it, they can just say no, and we've got no power to well, make them like say yes. it's almost like a goodwill payment as mm. opposed to a payment that's been legislated to have to actually pay. It'd be much nicer to say it legislated. But in this one, for whatever reason, and maybe it's the past modelling, when we've had batteries come along, mm. as in I'm talking about large batteries for storage in renewable projects, yep. then the batteries, for whatever reason, said we've never factored in any benefit fund, any VPA, so we've really got no fat in there to give you any money. And, mm. and we've gone back and said, well, we don't care, you haven't factored it in. Mm. It seems reasonable that you have something there. So it has been negotiations there. We just couldn't get there with the 1.5%. There was just no way their model that they could demonstrate that 1.5% was available in the system for them to be able to pay to us. So well, particularly we, without any government uh, support there to sort of try to enforce it either, must make it very, very hard. Without any history as well. And mm. that's the thing. Historically, wind farms have paid some amount, so we actually had more success with wind farms being able to say, mm. okay, we've got some amount here that we can use in terms of those wind farms because they've been used to paying it. Mm. Solar's a challenge, as we know, because typically they've been used to paying nothing. Mm. So it's mm. hard to get from nothing to anything at all. Yes. But with batteries, we we want to be fair and reasonable, so we accepted the argument that 1.5% was too much and that you hadn't paid it anywhere before, and we think if we kept pushing down the 1.5%, we'd probably get nothing. Mm. So we changed our framework now. And what So this is the amendment, basically, this took place. This is the yep. amendment. This is what we resolved on Thursday night, and that was to say, well, if you're a battery provider, we'll accept 0.75% instead of 1.5%, as the normal way we do it over the life of the contract. Or some of them said to us, actually, forget about that indexing every life of the con every year of the contract. We'd just rather pay it up front and get it out of the way. And we think it's fair enough if we pay a bit less than the one point the zero point seven five percent if it's up front. So our new framework says if you're a battery provider, we would like, please, if it's okay with you, mm, yeah, right. 0.5% up front in yeah. one off payment or 0.75% per year for mm. the life of the contract. Mm. And we, I think around those two, we will actually see mm. some progress with the battery mm. providers. So it's a big point you've raised, the fact that this is the ability, the power of negotiation that's really coming through here. You're negotiating now with these companies in regards to, to get some type of payment back for our communities. Because again, th there's nothing, there's, there's no legislation out there that can enforce what you're trying to do. That's why I think it's so important people understand that you're out there as, as a council group, as you know, Dubbo Regional Council, trying desperately here to turn around with these companies, and some are coming to the table, like Squadron we talked about before, mm -hmm. who are coming to the table and saying, yep, we are more than happy to support your community. We're more than happy to give 1.5%. But there's no legislation to have to support them in doing that. They're, they're doing that because they feel as though that's part of the negotiation. We're happy to do this. Again, I just draw back to the fact I so wish that state government and federal government will get off their tails and support this for these communities because there's five or six of these res groups around. They have to start taking some leadership in this and to support the community groups to actually get some money from these companies that are then going to support the communities. And more than all of that, 
my understanding of the legislation is that essentially what they've got to do is they have to demonstrate when they go through the planning process that they've had discussions mm. around a voluntary planning agreement. But that's it. So mm. they can have meetings. They can have three or four meetings. They can still talk, walk away from the table and say, no, thank you. Correct. So it's a fairly weak trigger that's in the planning process to say that you need to have some discussions mm. around some sort of community benefit fund, mm. but you don't have to do it. You, surely you should just make it compulsory. Mm. And mm. if I was on the other side, if I'm a shareholder in a company that's doing a renewable energy project or if I'm on the board of this company and someone says you can volunteer to pay some money or not, then I'm going to say, well, my, yeah, my choice duty will be no. <laughs> to my shareholders is to that's maximise right. the profit for them. So I'm going to pay nothing because yeah. I can pay nothing. Yeah. My fiduciary duty is to my shareholders, so I'll yeah. do that. Thanks very much. So it's a challenge to get there. But I could also see too, like if people are, are against the renewable energy, this, this, this is a counter This is the part of their argument group, I suggest. If you're talking about uh, why am I opposed to renewable energy being put up around here, well, I'm not getting anything back from my community. The, the, these groups won't pay uh, our community anything in regards to it. So, therefore, that, that's part, of, I think, where federal governments and, again, state governments, more particularly federal, can step in here to assist in that whole argument to get people to say, well, actually, no, they, they have to pay money to the communities. They have to do that. And therefore, that will then benefit everybody in return. Mm, and that's part of this whole thing that we yeah. throw around this term social license we throw around that you need to be showing the community you're doing something that benefits yeah. the community rather than just the landowner, which has yeah. got the project directly on their property and the company that's actually doing the project itself. You need to yeah. show that there's something that you're benefiting. And it's interesting because I'm not sure that other industries have to show that social license to the mm. same degree. I'm not sure yeah. that other industries have to so show that I'm going to go and build this project or use yeah. land in a certain way and I'll give money back to the community. They just, everyone accepts that they're doing that and they're generating profit and yeah. they might spend some of that money in the local community or they might employ some locals. But with renewables, for some reason, you need this social license. Don't mm. get me wrong, mm. I'm very happy with that because it means that we've got more money that we can generate in our community Absolutely. and benefit our community overall. Yeah. Spice Creek Wind Farm. Um, now, this looks so. This is going to be maybe our our first real one's going to be up and running. Is that right, Spice Creek Wind Farm? So, is there a? It, it's gone out to the public exhibition. Um, the decision's been made in regards to entering into a planning agreement here with Squadron Energy. In regards, so this is this is, I suppose, the first real operation that councils moved into in regards to. Um, I suppose we talk about the, the benefit funding and all this sort of stuff, the framework's being put in place here. Is this our first test case? This is the first one that we've been able to get across the line yet mm. with our new framework. Yeah, great. So we've got other agreements that have been fixed in the past or, or done in the past. So, for example, Bedengra Community Benefit Fund is open for applications now to the end of the month. Yep. That's one that was put in place many, many years ago as a planning agreement, but not with the new one and a half. So this is the, our first real um, run with the new framework. Correct. Yeah. Even the Ungluin farm, which, as you know, we just sod turning there recently, mm. that one there has got an agreement in place. That's all done, signed, sealed, delivered. But even that one was done way back. That might have been done by the old Wellington Child Council, maybe just after okay. the amalgamation. I'm not sure exactly when that agreement was signed, but that money will start flowing shortly. But again, it wouldn't have been at the one and a half percent. So... The Spices Creek Wind Farm, which again is another squadron project, yep. is the first one that we've done and negotiated through that whole framework and the 1.5%. And they've agreed to the 1.5% too. They've agreed they? to the 1.5%. Yep. So essentially, they've agreed to the negotiations. 
council has now formally agreed. We had some workshops and some discussions, but now on Thursday night, we formally agreed that, yes, we're happy to enter into this planning agreement mm. with that 1.5%. Now, there's other parts to it as well. There's the general radius about how far away you can spend that money away from the project. 20 kilometres is kind of a general radius that we look at in terms of where we'd spend that money, what you can spend it on in terms of roads or community projects. So there's a lot of detail in mm. the planning agreement, but generally it's around that area. Now, we had a number of public submissions and we had some group submissions as well, mm. and we tried to take as many of those into account as possible. One that we couldn't deliver on, which wouldn't be practical, there was, was one group who put a submission in around this one and they said, we want our group to be the group that basically does the assessment of any funds that will be spent and make the decision the decision on where that money would go. Now, the problem that we have with that from a council perspective is, as you know, there are 37 projects occurring mm. in the area. Mm. And if you ended up with 37 different groups yep. that were making the decision on where that money was spent, then mm. the start of it, it would be unwieldy with all those groups and, yep. and those funds going through. The second part is that the oversight on all of this is council's responsibility. Mm. So you still need councillors to resolve where that money to be spent. And you would hope that a councillor group, and mm. we're talking about some of these with that'll be applicable in the new council, so I'm going to use the word 11 or term 11 yep. rather than 10 because there'll be 11 councillors then. So you hope that 11 councillors with the best interest of the entire community at, at heart will make decisions that are in the best interest mm. of everyone. That's where all that part of that consultation comes into it as well, don't you? That's right. You, you so talk to the people. So the idea will be that you'll have various groups out there that will have input or maybe mm. consulted or maybe say where some of that money is being spent, but ultimately it will come back to council, an overarching committee of council, but mm. ultimately councillors in a committee meeting, in an open, transparent, mm. public committee meeting, oh, sorry, council meeting, that will make the decision about ultimately where that money goes. Do you have a, a potential dollar figure on what the 1.5% with this uh, Squadron Energy operation is going to look like? The CIV, or Capital Investment Value, in the environmental impact statement for this project is approximately $2 billion. So you take your 1.5% of $2 billion, you get $30 million. Take your $30 million, divide that by the life of the project, which is approximately 30 years, you get $1 million. So the amount paid, paid in this planning agreement is $1 million in the first year, and then each year after that for the 30 years, it's a $1 million plus CPI, so the amount's keeping track with inflation. But just to throw a small spanner in the works there, the state significant development application for this wind farm talks about the wind farm being up to 117 turbines, the capacity is 700 megawatts, but 106 of those turbines are proposed to be in the Debo Regional Council LGA and the other 11 are proposed to be in the Warrenbungal Shire Council LGA. So Dubbo would only get a pro rata amount of that million dollars that I just mentioned there. But it's significant money, particularly if it's going back in the community. Like That can be really well spent. Well, that's the thing. Well spent is the important part, and that's where I think that having 37 individual committees yes. and then keeping an eye on how that money is being spent yes. out of those is difficult, whereas, again, you want the feedback from all those communities and you want the framework to say yeah. how that money is going to be spent, yep. but you want the... Well, that's where you want to have a governing body. Like potentially, if you can get all 37, as it's wishful, I know, to get everybody on board for the 1.5% with that sort of figure of money, there's a big pool of money then that needs to be distributed. You want a governing group that's going to be able to do that rather than individuals sort of trying to control those interest pies. Yes, but keep in mind that that planning agreement is very specific around 
how and where that money can be spent. So there is a fear, and I've heard this fear expressed by some people that, oh, the Spices Creek Wind Farm, you'll take the money from that and you'll spend it on a new theatre in Dubbo mm. because it's all about Dubbo City rather than mm. us out here. But if you read the planning agreement, I encourage mm. people to have a look at that, the planning agreement is very specific around how and where that money can be spent. So yeah. that, as a legal document, could not have money that mm. was taken and spent somewhere dramatically different or outside that agreement. Mm. And I think some people are a bit fearful because after the amalgamation, there was an example, and again, I haven't investigated this in depth. I've only heard this from some community members where a committee had made a decision around how some of that Bedengra wind farm money was spent and it was being spent in the area. And then when it got to council, supposedly councillors changed that and put the money into somewhere else that was outside the realm of where Mm. it was meant to go and was spent on a project that wasn't necessarily the preferred project by the people who mm. initially looked at that. So I think there's a bit of a fear because maybe it happened in the past. Once bitten, so to speak. Yeah, that's right. So I understand why that fear is there, but I can say to you definitely that this council is not going to go and break those agreements. They're a legal document. This council is not interested in, mm. in breaking that, and hopefully councillors in the future aren't as well. Mm. The money that's there in that document will be spent where it's meant to be spent in the mm. way it's meant to be spent. And as you say, you advise people to go and just simply to read the document too. If you have yeah. any concerns or problems with it, go and read the document. Exactly right. Ah, now this is something we did talk about uh, a couple of podcasts back in regards to overgrown blocks. Now... It looks as though there's been some recommendations put forward in regards to uh, some policy setting in regards to uh, the overgrown blocks around our city. Do we, do we, I suppose it's a couple of parts of this. First of all, do we have a lot of overgrown blocks? Is this a major concern for us as a, as a, a community, first of all? We get a few where people report them as needing some work being done on them, some tidying up, that type of thing. Mm. Most people are pretty responsive when we reach out to them. Now, here's the interesting part. Mm. <laughs> Let's say I love doing up old cars and I've got a town block and I've got a little bit of land there, maybe a little bit larger block. And so I bring a couple of cars, I go and buy some old cars or find some old properties and I bring them in and I do them up. So I pull them apart and I'm working on them and, and this can take months or years to happen. And my neighbour looks at that and says, I hate the look of those mm. old cars you got that are pulled apart. Yep. Now, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Mm. So for me, they're Mm. beautiful old machines that I'm lovingly restoring. For my neighbour, they don't Mm. like those particular things. So you first of all get the problem is what is a block that looks ugly? What Mm. is something that's dangerous? What's something that's overgrown? All of these things. I mean, I might like my yard to be something that looks a bit like a jungle, Mm. whereas someone else might like a yard that looks perfectly manicured and they're cutting Mm. the grass with a pair of scissors to get it all to the perfect Mm. height. So you've got all those discussions, first of all. Mm. And I've had people who say to me, oh, the neighbour, they look terrible. And I've had a look at it or they sent me photos and I've said, look, I think it looks fine. That's just Mm. the way they like their yard to Mm. be. They like lots of trinkets and various things in their yard. So is there a general standard that, uh, that people are meant to be complying to with their yards when it comes to what constitutes overgrown and what doesn't? There is one, and that right. relates to the length of grass or weeds okay. in their in their area. Once it gets above thirty centimeters long, right, then that can be a bit of a flag to say, okay, this is now getting to the stage where it might be overgrown. Is, is that just in town? Doesn't apply to rural residents. I'm thinking after the last couple of weeks, <laughs> you're looking I live out of town. I've got about ten acres out there. I can tell you, it's well and truly above thirty centimeters right now. Uh, look, I think it would apply everywhere. Actually, okay, I, I think, all right, yeah. all right. So I'm have to look out for someone maybe. <laughs> 
something putting something just, there, some sort of notice to council, the fact he needs to go and mow his lawn again. Well, and, and so this is the thing. There's that part of it, mm. and then someone needs to decide. And the area about what constitutes a mess and what mm. things look great and what things look terrible, all mm. those sort of things. So let's say for a start, we get to the point where our staff inspect it. Someone's complaining. Our staff inspect someone's yard, and they look at it, and they go, you're right. That's classified. Yeah, sometimes it can be dangerous as well. So, for example, if you've mm. got lots of sheets of iron, speaking of snakes earlier, yes, yes. lots of sheets of iron, and you know you've got your kids playing in the backyard and you know just across the, the way there, maybe there's a, mm. a basic fence, but you think, oh, look at those sheets of iron sitting over there. I just guarantee there's going to be a few snakes having a lovely time under mm. those. And for whatever reason, so it's it might a force come like out. a safety assessment thing, doesn't it? That or? sort of thing as okay. well. So all of that is important in this whole scheme mm. of things. Let's say we get to the point where we go, yep, our staff have said that's overgrown, that's dangerous, that's disgusting, it needs some work done on it. Mm. We've got a process we've got to go through and obviously we follow the rules and our process can be sending them a letter and then we've got to wait a certain amount of time for a response and then they can respond and it goes through all of that. From the time that we can basically say, yes, that's a problem, to the time that we can issue orders and issuing orders basically say, you need to do this, otherwise you're going to be fined. Mm is just over 50 days. Oh, okay. So right. when someone and says... It's a, it's a reasonable time frame. It is. And yeah. and people get frustrated with that. Mm-hmm. And people say, why can't you fix it up? Why can't you do it? But there are processes in place. When we go and tell someone about something, we don't have an expectation of a instant response. They might have 14 days or 21 days mm-hmm. to respond to various parts along there. So at the end of that 50 plus days, we can then say, okay, we're going to issue a fine. But we still can't make them do something about it, mm. we can issue them a fine. Now, mm. a lot of these blocks, history tells us that a lot of these blocks when it gets to that stage are blocks where people aren't living in the house. I was going to say, like what happened if you're an abandoned home or someone's no longer there or whatever the case may be. And it's probably a good term you use there. Abandoned home, I reckon, would be a pretty good description of some of them. Mm. So it might be they don't live there. The owner probably doesn't live in the LGA. Mm. Sometimes it might be part of an estate that might have been passed down to someone who lives wherever mm. and they're not even aware of it, not conscious of it, and so they don't really care about it that much. Mm. Some of these as well, the ones that get to the stage where they're very bad, often have unpaid rates because, again, it's an abandoned type home. And the interesting part is, and this is where we've had to make the decision on Thursday night, people say, can't you just go in there and fix it up? It's disgusting, it's terrible, it's unsafe. Get in there, clean it up, mow the lawn, do whatever you've got to do, Mm. and just add on to their rates. Well, a couple of things there. Firstly, most of the people aren't paying their rates. Mm. Secondly, mm. no, legally, we've had some advice, we can't add on any maintenance we do to their rates. We can still charge, once it gets to a certain point in time, we can still charge that person for that cleanup, for the work that we've done. But if they've abandoned their home and they're not paying their rates, the likelihood of being paid mm. is low. So we had to make a decision. Where do we go with all of this? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and just another little side there, once someone hasn't paid their rates for a certain amount of time, we can sell that place. I was going to say, is there a point in time, though, if they haven't paid their rates, the council can then try to retrieve that money? We can. We can't sell their home to get back money that we've spent on cleaning it up, right. but we can sell that home for rates, for unpaid rates. Now, it's not 
a five-minute process to do that, yeah, yeah. and you can't do it. And I imagine it, there'd be a certain figure you'd have to reach to first. You couldn't just sort of say, oh, miss the last two years, we'll sell the home. Well, you know, there's a lay fees there. It's not if you're a day overdue, we're not going to go and sell yeah, your home. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. There's, I'm sure there's a reasonable time frame on that as well. Yeah, and I think it's not so much the dollar figure, it's the amount of time ah, that they've okay. been without paying it. Yeah, but right. let's say they go several years without paying it, maybe after four or five years we can finally sell it. It's mm. not an easy process from our perspective, and it does feel like a sledgehammer to kill a mosquito because – they might owe ten thousand mm. dollars in rates, say, yep. and and you're getting interest on this as well. And the home, maybe it's not a great home, but even the block of land mm. might be worth a hundred grand, two hundred yeah. grand, yeah. whatever. But so we're selling something that might be worth, uh, let's say, it's a hundred grand. You know, it's an abandoned old home and it's it's derelict, and someone's going to have to clean it up, and it's not a great block of land. So let's say worst case scenario, Dubbo, you'd be doing very well to get that for a hundred grand. Yeah. So we both s- putting the hands up right now. So I'll buy it for that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so we sell something for a hundred grand. We take our ten thousand dollars of rates, say, and any other legal mm. expenses, and then we go, great. There's ninety grand for the person that probably we've had trouble contacting anyway, because mm. we haven't been able to get them to pay their rates. They might then put their hand up when there's ninety grand on the table. <laughs> there's a check for you sitting here. You better come pick it up. But they're probably not going to get as much money for that as if they came mm. and did it themselves. So even at that point in time, we still couldn't say we're going to just take the money for any maintenance we've done on the yard mm. out of that 90 grand. We'd still have to try and get the money out of them through normal debt collection processes. Mm. So we had to make a decision as a council. Yeah, yeah. Do we get to the point at the end of this process, we've served orders and keep in mind over the last year, we looked at it and there were a couple of hundred homes, 267 homes that this process had applied to at the beginning of the process by the end of it, the ones where we're actually serving orders, yep. three. Oh, really? So most people so most respond. people complied. They, yeah, they, they right. responded to the uh, the requests and yep. they turned around and did the right thing. Correct. So 267, you get down to three. Okay. So we, as a council, needed to make a decision on like what is our policy. Like a 99% success rate. Almost. Yeah, like, that's, that's pretty, pretty impressive. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> so we had to make a decision as a council, what is our decision, what's our policy mm. for these that get to that particular level. And so we had so one this of, is the three people at the end you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and yeah. and that's probably per year. Yeah. So we needed to say, do we just go, okay, we'll keep issuing them orders, keep finding them and hope one day they clean it up. Or do we actually go and clean it up? That'll incur expenses for us as a council. Mm. We've had legal advice to say that if we do go in and clean it up, we need to video that as well because someone then might say you damaged my property when you came on because we were allowed to go on and clean it up after we've gone through certain processes, but someone still mightn't be happy because we didn't get invited to go on and clean it up. Mm. So then they might say, you damaged that particular part of my yard or you, you, you did whatever. So having a video there to show evidence of that and storing that video as well, so for future years. Right. So there's a cost to all of that. Yep. We then as a council, as a council group, had to say, which way should we go? Now, what we resolved was to go away and do a policy, do a, the policy, and there's no final decision yet, but do it the policy on the process that we would go in and clean it up. Mm. So we understand there might be some expense, but we also thought for the good law-abiding citizens in the Regional yep. Council area... You're the vast majority want to do the right thing. Correct. Yep. And if you've got someone beside you, yeah. the, the place is a mess, it's an abandoned home, all the rest of it, we thought doing the right thing by those people, it seems like the fair and right thing to do. And we'll keep pursuing the money and we've got processes yep. for that. But at some point, some of those, we might have to wear the cost a little bit, which mm. is not just us, it's the entire community that yep. wears the cost, obviously, because yep. the community... That's right, we're the ones who pay the rates. Exactly right. Yep. Yep. So that was the decision we made. Now, again, we'll develop a policy, we'll go to public exhibition, all those processes. But in the short term, that's where we're headed with that particular one. Okay. Um, 
It's an interesting little one, Matt, in regards to this whole renewable energy zone. There's going to be a need, I'd think, here for um, for more housing here to be able to cater for the employees who are going to come into these areas and, and setting up like we're at the starting point we talked about. And I note the fact that Squadron, um, uh, one of the main groups sort of thing here, I'm sure that they're very interested in, in wanting to sort of to make sure that their workers are, are set up here. Is there any is there anything here that council can do to assist them in regards to uh, getting more housing here set up in Dubbo? So one of the components of our meeting on Thursday night was a confidential component. That's a regular part of many meetings where mm. we might be deciding on tenders and all the rest of it. So this one was a part of our confidential component. So I can't talk about the discussions that we had or the body of the report, but I can talk about the final resolution. And the final resolution talked about the fact that we're going to or looking to enter into an agreement to lease some land to Squadron Energy, and that will be for housing, obviously. Now, I can't talk about how many housing, but you can probably work out that it's a lot because mm. we've got a lot of workers I'll need. I can't talk about the exact parcel of land or any of the terms associated with it at this stage. It was all part of the confidential Can you talk component. about the type of housing they want to put in? Well, here's the thing. So in general, what I can talk about is the fact that they will want to lease this land. They don't want to go and buy this land. Mm. They want to lease the land. And what we want is legacy out of all of these renewable projects. So rather than sell them some land and then they use it for whatever they use it for and then sell it later on, that's all too complicated. They don't need all that. The decision was, and again, the, the final lease hasn't been sorted out yet, but the decision was to go ahead down the lease path and this will be land at the moment that's greenfield. So they'll need to go and put in the underground infrastructure, the water, the sewer, the pipes, the ambient, etc. They'll need to put that in as if they were building an estate. Mm. They'll need to put some roads in because you need to get access to it. Mm. But then they'll probably put some fairly basic housing on top of all of that for their workers to live in. Now, keep in mind, it's a competitive field out there. There are projects happening across the nation. I think the days of putting up some containers and a basic like bed, the old dongers. The old dongers, that's mm. right. Of putting those on a, like the old campsite, mining sites, doing those around renewable projects and saying, come and live in these. I think the employees say, well, that's nice, but I've got another project up the road I can go and do and it's got a bit nicer mm. accommodation for me. Mm. So I think the proponents are realising this. The other part that's changed is that the planning process now has changed. You can no longer say when you're submitting your proposal to the state government, oh, yes, we'll have people that will live in Dubbo and Wellington and we'll have people that will get transported in a general way and it's all okay. Mm. They've got to be more specific about where those people are going to live, where you're going to get these employees from. So you need to be able to provide that because you've got these cumulative effects because in the past, every different proponent would say, oh, yeah, we'll just get Mm. these people from Dubbo and Wellington and they'll live in Dubbo and Wellington. You've got to display that. So this is good. That means that someone like Squadron are going to be able to say, we've got this land, we've got a lease agreement in place with the Regional Council, here's the land, here's how many houses are going to be there, how many people can live there, etc. And that would be part of the whole planning process. For us, we'll get underground infrastructure put in, fantastic. We'll get some sort of lease fee. Now, it would be okay, that lease fee would be okay, whatever we negotiate there on terms, and I don't want to say what that fee or what that lease mm. fee would be, but at the end of that, we get... The land given back to us, well, still ours, that would never left yeah. us, still owned by us, with the underground infrastructure that we need. The responsibility of Squadron will be to remove whatever housing they have, and to be fair, they probably go and use it on the next project they're doing. Mm. And then we've got an area that we could build housing at very cheap rates from a council perspective, or sell mm. those blocks of land off, 
So we could either take that and say, here's an opportunity for us to build some affordable housing or here's an opportunity for us to add some money to the bottom line of council because we've got this where we didn't have to develop that mm. underground infrastructure. And if you mm. talk to developers, they often talk about the final price they sell a block of land at, a third of that maybe might have been mm. put into the underground infrastructure. So there's a big saving from our perspective plus some sort of lease fee on top of that. So this is obviously going to be council-owned land that, that council currently owns that uh, Squadron would lease. Is that right, first That's and correct. foremost? Yeah, yep. Are we talking here, and I know you can't go into the details, but we're talking here about obviously residential, potentially already residential areas? That yeah, it would be a residential area. So these houses that they were built on, I'm not even sure if you call them houses, the, the accommodation that they were built on top of that mm. would be some form of housing that would be in a residential area. And some people that live near it might say, oh, gee, it's not beautiful housing or it's a bit too compact or condensed. But the idea would be that it would be there for construction time frame and then not be there after that. Mm. So it's a, I think it's a good win for the community if it mm. all goes ahead. Is, is there an opportunity there for a community consultation on that or is it more of a decision that's made here in regards by council? I don't know there'll be much community consultation on that because it really is land, a bit like we don't go and consult the community when we sell a block of land in Keswick. We're selling blocks of mm. land there now in Keswick, for example. So that land was developed. We might have some plans to go out publicly and, and let people look at those, mm. but it won't be something that necessarily will go through that process because it really is a commercial deal that'll happen between Dubbo Regional Council and Squadron mm. to say, we've got land, it's zoned correctly, this can be built on it. Mm. All we're doing is instead of selling that land to a developer, we're releasing it to a developer to put some housing or to put some sort of accommodation on that. And that housing was left to be approved by our planning department and still go through all the right processes. And that's the thing I think that people forget about with some of this renewable activity, everything that happens needs to go through a fairly stringent process. So whether it be some housing you need or whether it be the project itself or whether it be various noises or mm. frequencies that might be put out by these particular projects, then all of those things, everything needs to be assessed from a fairly stringent process. So mm. I, I think it's a pretty good outcome that you finally get. So at some point in time, uh, you're going to, or council will, will present this uh, to the community to show that here's... This is the architectural design. This is what it's going to look like. This is uh, this is what's going to go forward with it. This is how it's going to be set up. Um, I, d I don't know. That's for a fact. I don't know that we'll present it because normally a right. DA would go through. You, you don't sit there and do community consultation on okay. Billy Boggs is building a house next to me. So it'd be set up almost like a, a private type scenario that if, if I'm putting a, a house down myself, yeah. is that sort of saying? That yeah, if, if that's right. I don't, I don't have to put that out for public uh, approval, so to speak. But the DA process is public, so the yeah. DA would still be, once the DA is a lodge, people can go and look at them. So yeah. think so of it. see the DA. That's right. You could see the DA and you could make a comment on the DA, but yeah. it wouldn't be a. We wouldn't try and do. I can't imagine us trying to do a big community consultation piece on it mm. because it is a bit like exactly as you said. You decide to build a new house. You go and buy a mm. block of land. You put plans in the council. They go through a DA and you build your house. That's all fine. Mm. Now this would be more than one house, obviously. Mm. So you might argue there might need to be some community consultation. I don't know where we're at with that yet, but I can't okay. imagine that would be needed because it is really a developer buying some land and building some. Is, some housing. So, so Squadron Energy, this is what they want to do as well? They're, they're keen on this? As an they, idea? they certainly approached us to say we so need to provide housing. they council in regards to this. Right. Okay. We, we need to provide housing. We need a lot of housing. How can we do it? What's the best way to do it? And we've certainly been encouraging a lot of these proponents to look at Wellington as well. Yep. The problem with Wellington for some of them is it's not the volume. There's not the quantity. So we will see more development in Wellington definitely, mm. but probably by some of the smaller projects that don't need the same amount of housing don't have the same number of workers but for this project it's a bigger okay. project they just they haven't got the land there in Wellington. So is it up to Squadron now to come back to council with, with the DA on this? It'll be it'll be a, a negotiation first of all okay. before it gets to that point in time because 
this really, the resolution from council was really to say, we give you permission to go and finalise the negotiation and go down that path because council staff couldn't go and complete this whole negotiation and then come back to council and council said, no, we don't want that. Mm. We're, we're, we're resolving completely the other way. So this now, again, we can have workshops, we can have phone conversations, but this is now a decision of council to say, yes, we give the staff permission to go down that path of entering into an agreement, but the final agreement will still come back to council before it's finally resolved. So okay. at least that gives direction for the staff to go down this path. Mm. Okay. Fluoride. It's been a while since we talked about fluoride, Matt. Uh, I'd like to think the fact we're at the point now where is fluoride back in our system or where are we up to at the uh, the John Gilbert water treatment plant? Uh, we, Because I know that you know, there's been plenty of talk uh, about this was all going to be up and running. Um, are we up and running or, or what's happened? No, we're not. Oh, we're and not? It's a bit frustrating still. What's happened? It's a slow process, I'm being told by the experts. And uh, go back historically, sorry. Mm. We know that January 2019, there was a failure in the fluoride dosing system. Yep. The community wasn't told. Councillors, council, whoever, kept it all very quiet. I've read reports that it was known by our staff and it was certainly reported mm. through the right channels, but for whatever reason, everyone decided that it would be better to keep quiet. I discovered this in mid-2022-ish, mm. brought it to the attention of the community, let them know, because mm. it was pretty disappointing that it had been kept quiet for so long and exposed a lot of day. And in September 2022, we made a decision that, yes, the only real path we had was to put fluoride to fix the fluoride dosing system and it was going to be an expensive process. In April 2023, we awarded the tender for an organisation yep. to basically build a new fluoride dosing yep. system. Now, from so there... About Easter last year, wasn't it? Yeah, that'd so be about right. Yeah. That was the tender was awarded, so yep. we're pushing nearly 12 months now. That's right, and you'd hope, okay, you've awarded a tender, here's a company that's got the ability to build a fluoride dosing system, mm -hmm. fantastic. Now, we did make the decision to go with a powder fluoride dosing system rather than a liquid fluoride dosing system that supposedly was much safer for the mm. operators of that. Liquid fluoride is a, is a dangerous pro, uh, okay. substance and, yep. and the dry powder was better. But in terms of the design process, it's been more complicated than the tenderers imagined, more right. complicated than we imagined. What, because we're going with the powdered form as opposed to liquid or? Uh, that was one part of it, but certainly just every sorry, every water treatment plant is different. Mm. Our water treatment plant is an, a very old system that then has had a newer part bolted on. I think back around 2006, we bolted on a newer part to that, right. fitting it around the constraints of the actual site itself, all sorts of things in the design process. Again, I personally would have hoped that you employ someone that's an expert in this area and they come in and they just do it. Yeah. But I've been told that everyone's individual, everyone's different. And the, the tender we awarded was a design and construct. We didn't have a final plan that we then said, okay, Someone's finished this plan, now go and build it because we wanted the expertise of whoever we brought along into this project to help out with that process. We also have to get approval from the correct department in the state government mm. because we're dealing with health, we're dealing with mm. water, we're treating water, and we've got a very fine margin for the concentration level. It's only between 1.0 milligrams per litre to 1.05 milligrams. Wow, that's, that's the chlorine. That's the fluoride. Oh, fluoride, so not chlorine. Yeah. Fluoride. So that's, that's the limit. That's We can't yeah. go below or above those two, so it's yeah. very strict in those conditions. So it's certainly a bit frustrating, I'm finding. Mm. Uh, the the bags that are brought in are, are one-ton bags. You've got to store them in a special room. It's, it's a very complicated process, but 
I would have hoped we had fluoride back in the water. Do, do you by know now. where we're up to then in regards to it? Well, we're progressing. Okay. But yeah. I suspect now we're at the point, it's probably September this year okay. before we'll finally have fluoride back in our water, which yeah. from January 2019 to September 2024. That's right. Yeah, it's a very yeah. long process. So I do apologise if I apologise again. Look, I apologise from to the community on behalf of council way back January 2019. Once it was known it wasn't in there, that would have been the point that the community should have known about mm. it. Unfortunately, it wasn't mm. that point. So it's progressing. It's progressing slowly. It's frustrating. But we are still going down that path and making sure we get it right. It's not something mm. that you want to just do quickly and not get right. That's the important part is we need to get it right. Mm. I think last week we talked about uh, the campsite, uh, which is, I suppose, like the homeless person campsite down there at Regent Park. Um, and there was some discussion held in regards to this. I know you were talking about you were going to meet with some people in regards to this, and the council's going to meet to uh, see if we can work out a bit of a plan of attack on, on how to approach and move forward with this campsite. Uh, was there any further movement on this front? Oh, movement, but not outcomes not okay. resolutions which right. is frustrating yeah so we've had meetings with department and not me i haven't been personally involved in these so our staff have had meetings with department of communities and justice had meetings with police mm. we've been down there our staff have been down there with various organizations around support services department of communities and justice new south Wales police as you know we've talked about before the police don't have the move-on powers they used to have mm. many years ago. So they're there living on the close to the river there at Regan Park, and the police aren't – they don't have the power to just yeah, go on and say Are they breaking any on. rules right now, though? Like from the point of view – can they get them from the point – I shouldn't say get them, but you know what I mean? Like it, is there something there, though, that police do have as an ability to move them on because of uh, breaking certain – even no camping rules or things like that? Yeah, so – Yes-ish, but they've got to be breaking some rules and we've got no camping signs up so we can kind of implement those. But the better approach that the Department of Communities and Justice have been talking about has been to get them into some other available services rather than say, you mm. must move. The conversation has been, okay, we've got these other services. Do you think you might like to take advantage of some of these other services and basically just work along that path? So mm. probably a softly, softly approach. It's been a bit disappointing because they feel like they were having some success along those paths. Mm. But then when it came to the follow-up from the people down there, the follow-up hasn't occurred. So in other words, so okay, that sounds good. I'll go and follow up and look for some other alternative housing. And then they just didn't do anything about it. Yeah, right. It did get a bit ugly towards the end of the conversation where you know there was some shouting and, and various language. And mm. so it, it got to the stage where it was escalating a little bit. But mm. again, nothing happened. There was no physical violence or anything like that. There's, there's been some meetings that mean, again, you try and use your networks and try and use counterparts. Canterbury Bankstown City Council, we've had some discussion with them because they've had some problems on similar lines. And they said that basically they've got the same problem. Uh, up in Tamworth, Tamworth's got a, a homeless persons panel. Mm. And again, some discussions there, but they've had the same problem. So mm. it seems to be an ongoing well, it's, issue. It's a growing problem, isn't it, across the board uh, in so many different areas. It's uh, look, Australia's not immune to this. We, we know the issues over there in America and things like that. You've got to walk around the streets of San Francisco and LA and these type of things, and they're, they're all over the place. The country towns there are the same as us as well. Yeah. Um, it, it seems to be a growing issue here in Dubbo. We've got, uh, I noticed the other day, there seems to be a few people down there at uh, Sandy Beach in the cars and things like that. They seem to be appearing to sort of be staying there and sleeping there in those situations as well. 
Um, th- this this is a bit of a growing trend, sadly, in our society, and it must be very difficult, I think, for for all parties. I don't think anybody wants to live in a car, and I don't think anybody wants to live, you know, out of a house. Um, but yeah, uh, listening to your conversation, it sounds like things are trying to happen, but it sounds like it's going to be a very slow and tedious process. Slow and tedious, and I suppose my only advice to people would be keep using Tracker Riley Sockaway, beautiful area there. Just be aware, be alert that they're there. Mm. I don't think they've seen we've seen any ridiculously stupid behaviour mm. from people there at this stage. But just be aware, uh, who knows what might happen in the future. And they might feel a bit of pressure as well mm. from council or from police or from DCJ and, and they might respond negatively to that pressure. The, the problem is that the avenues available to council and actually the police to, to move this on to get a rapid resolution are few. So I suppose what we're doing is trying to manage it and mm. try and work with the people there, but ultimately to just ultimately or move them on and move them out of that area there. Two things there, we've got limited powers to do that, but secondly, they're going to just go somewhere else. Yeah. So it's yeah. solving the problem is to get them to access some of the services that are available, but yeah. we need them to, to participate in that process as yeah. well. I so if we yeah. if we destroy that camp tomorrow and say you can't live there and, and get out of well, here. They're going to go somewhere, aren't they? They're going to go somewhere. That's yeah. right. So that, yeah. And that is the problem. And even the people sleeping in the cars you talked about, yeah. getting them to access services is the important process there. Yeah, absolutely. On a far more uh, positive note, to the Waste to Art competition entries are now open. Now, this is uh, always a, a terrific uh, competition that runs here uh, every year. And I know you love it. It's one of your personal favourite ex- exhibitions that goes on down there at the uh, the Art Gallery. Um, tell us about this, Matt, this Waste to Art. Like, uh, how does it actually work and how do people get involved in it? Listen to you showing your age, Art Gallery. Oh, okay. Sorry. There you go. <laughs> the Western Plains Cultural Centre. Oh, I see. This, this. Opened in 2007. Actually, we just had the 17th anniversary. It was the 10th of February 2007. Oh, so there, there you go. So the old art galleries. It's, uh, yeah. Okay. Fair enough. You, you got me on that one. I think it used to be called the art gallery when it was where it's the council chamber is now. 1863. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, so where the council chamber is now, that's where I remember the library being a long time ago, but yes. also yes. the art gallery, as it might have been called then. Yeah, yeah. I remember going. There was a kid, and maybe 30 years ago as well. That's right. (laughs) So, the Waste to Art exhibition, sorry, the competition, has now opened for entries. Entries close on the 3rd of May. You've got different categories there categories for primary school students, secondary school students, community members, professional artists, a whole range of different categories. You can do 2D, 3D, functional work. So, all sorts of different things there. So, so you're just sort of like, what, using waste products to create art out of them. Is that the, that the plan or...? That's exactly right. And they have a theme each year. So this year's theme is about packaging. So oh, think about okay. soft plastics, think about bubble wrap, think about boxes, right. manufacturing, consumerism, all that sort of thing. And I probably one of my favourites that I saw one time was a map of Australia made out of old circuit boards, computer circuit boards. Oh, really? so it was a big map. It was maybe two metres wide yeah. by a metre and a half high. And it was just a bunch of circuit boards that had been kind of glued or yeah. stuck together and then cut around the edge to make a map of Australia. Oh, wow. So, That's so cool. Yeah, ones yeah, yeah. like that. So it's it's something where you see a huge variety mm. of different artworks there. So entries close on the 3rd of May, so you've right. got a fair bit of time there. Yep. Then there'll be an exhibition of weights 
to Art exhibition that will be held from the 25th of May to the 21st of July. Uh, the official opening will be on the 1st of June. Nice. So essentially there, and that will be held at the Western Plains <laughs> Cultural Centre. Not the Art Gallery? Not the Art Gallery, that's right. <laughs> So the and it's always a bit of a focus on something to just talk about yeah. what's happening and in, in our society, if you like. Mm. The it also shows how creative so many oh, people are. That's what know. I love about it, taking oh, art and it's unreal. Some of the stuff from the kids is fantastic as well. So there are yes. some adults that do some fantastic work, but some of the stuff from the kids mm. is fantastic. Mm. Where you, they're just using junk, rubbish, yeah. stuff that would go in a landfill. In fact, the supply chain solution centre said that ninety one percent of packaging is sent to landfill. So if there's something else you can do with it that would be more interesting than landfill, fantastic. So I do love it. I love that we're we're doing this. And there's there's more than us, more than just a regional council that does this. There's a a group that we're in that they do this competition so that if you you go well in the Dubbo competition, you go through to some higher levels, some regional levels. I like that idea as well. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, it's uh, it's all good. So get down to the Western Plains Cultural Centre. Which does have an art gallery part of it, of course, but that's where it all is. So it gets it. When is it again, Matt? Uh, it goes from well, the entries close. The entries close on third of May. That's yep. probably the main thing is to know when the entries close. So get amongst um, it. Get amongst it. Get out there and have a look through all that packaging you've got. So you know consumerism, and again that makes mm. sense with consumerism. Talking about consumerism, so get down there with the consumerism, make something that'll basically be outstanding yeah. in there. So yeah, I'm it's sure tough it competition, be. but yeah. I'm sure if you put your creative juices to work, then they'll you'll come up with something. Sounds like a plan. All right, mate. It's that time of the week. It's time for the Limerick of the Week. What well, have you got for us this week? We've just talked up Waste to Art. Yes. And I do, you're right. I do love it. I just love that creativity from oh, people. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I couldn't help myself this week. I've got my Limerick this week on the Waste to Art competition. Oh, how appropriate. Well so, done. Here we go. Entries are now open in Waste to Art, where rubbish is given a new start. In Dubbo, it's clear creativity is near with recycled goods playing their part. (laughs) Well done again. Well done, mate. Well, folks, that wraps up again for another Straight from the Mayor's Mouth. Until next week, everyone, take care. Straight from the Mayor's Mouth with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council.